Well, hey folks, welcome to the third episode of the Five to Go podcast. And when we started talking about trying to get this thing going, you know, it's, it's about racing and racing's an escape from a lot of the bad things that are going on. But we want to start today not talking about any hot button issues, but paying some remembrance. First off, for NASCAR town, Las Vegas, who arguably, I'm sure, at a country music festival, there were people that went to the Las Vegas Motor Speedway race in March. There'll be two cup races next year. There was just a truck race there this past weekend. And, uh, and, to, and to see some of the drivers talk about, I was just there, it, it's, it's a big deal. And Las Vegas native Kyle Busch just went to Victory Lane at Dover as well. So for the 59 people, I think the latest number is that perished. And for the almost 530 injured, we want to remember them. In the NASCAR world, overnight we lost legendary engine builder, championship team owner, and soon-to-be NASCAR Hall of Famer Robert Yates, and only 74 years old, I believe he was, and he passed away, I believe, from complications of cancer. He'd been suffering from that. He was out and about and kind of in a recovery mode, and I don't think most of the most of the masses really knew that Robert Yates was was back on the downhill slide again. So we say cheers to Robert Yates. Yesterday, we dealt with kind of a conundrum in the world of fast-paced information where we didn't know what was going on with Tom Petty, then we thought we knew, then we didn't know, and then about 9 or 10 o'clock last night, we found out for sure that Tom Petty, the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, passed away at 66 years old, and he meant a lot to a lot of people, and his music was a soundtrack, as you'll hear later on in the show here, to a lot of the things that we did in racing, and he was the same age as my father, Peter Turnbull, and Peter passed away last Thursday at 66 years old as well from complications of several health problems, so we thank everybody for listening in today. And we thank the NASCAR world for giving us some escape. And I'm sure, pretty sure my dad, Tom Petty, Robert Yates, some victims of Vegas, and yes, Captain Herb would like this song. They arrested me and they put me in jail and they called my pappy to throw my bail. And he said, son, you're going to drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot, hot Rod Lincoln. Lincoln. And welcome again to the 5 to Go podcast, everybody. I am here with Eric Von Hessler. Yeah. Hello, and condolences <laughs> about your father. No, thank you, sir. Yeah, I was trying to lighten that up there, you know, yeah. but it's hard. It's hard well, when you go through all that, you know. Um, so I'm joined by Eric Von Hessler, who is a spry this week, start, starting a new talk schedule on WSB Radio, and we'll dive into that in just a second. And also joined by champion mechanic and former Gresham Motorsports Park general manager, Dan O. Elliott. How are you doing today? Uh, it, it's great to be talking with you all and talking about racing, because that's always my escape. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, that's, that's what this stuff is for, right? It's, it's an escape. <laughs> it really is. And so what I want to do today is to start out, we always do, for those that are listening to this podcast for the first time, we, t- we take a deep dive on five different subjects that are in the racing world. And of course, of late, people are connecting everything with the real world, everything with NFL or baseball or whatever has to connect with the real world. But there and, and it has a negative connotation, but I do love when we could drag racing into how it connects with our personal lives, which are the real world. And certainly with what I'm my and my family are, me and my family are going through right now, and certainly what with as we'll learn here with uh, Eric Von Essler and Dan Elliott have gone through in the past with the same kind of thing, uh, racing does have to do with my personal life. It's not just something I do the podcast. And so I want to open this up and I want to talk to you guys first about it. Your parents and each of you have, have lost one or both parents. I don't even know where that stands, but I know we were just talking offhand about that. Uh, Eric, I want to go to you first because you have an interesting kind of scenario mm-hmm. with with how your parents got you into it. My whole subject line was, how did your dad get you in auto yeah, racing? Yeah. And it wasn't so much him. No, it was my mother who got my father into racing. And then by the time <laughs> I came along, it was, a, it was a family affair. But my mother's brother 
drove a, a, a late model stock car in the late 60s and, and through the 70s in, uh, in western New York. So she was a, just a huge uh, NASCAR fan, but racing fan all the way around. And uh, like I say, she got my father into it. And by the time I came along, we were one of those families that wherever we lived, when we lived up north or whether we lived down south, uh, the first thing we did was find a place to live. And then the second thing we did was find a local speedway. Uh And we would be there every Friday or Saturday night, whenever they ran their thing. And we were that kind of family. You know, we were we were that kind of family. We were at the racetrack every every weekend. And then as I became a teenager, I sort of rebelled a bit and sort of rebelled against the family so I, I was like oh I don't have to go to the racetrack anymore because I'm a grown-up adult and so I kind of uh, didn't I wasn't into racing for a few years uh, until my mother uh, came to visit me uh, one time and I started watching racing again with her in the 90s and so she got me into it twice so I ended up back into racing again because of my mother. She was a an abs- there was no fan of racing bigger than my mother. Hey, your story is actually a lot like Captain Herb's. His mom and dad were both into racing. And for those listening in and wondering, who's this Captain Herb guy I keep mentioning? Yeah. Captain Herb Emery did a NASCAR racing show on WSB Radio for 17 years and is the one that got me both into the traffic business and the NASCAR business officially. And Captain Herb, who passed away back in 2014, his story was, grew up going to the racetrack, it was a ritual with his family, he became a teenager, rock music, rebelling, I'm out of here, and he actually rebelled by going to the radio station and sweeping floors. So his rebellion led him into radio, and then radio led him back into back racing. Back to racing, right. Uh, that's really cool. Dan Elliott, if any of us can attest to what a parental figure has to do with motorsports, I think we talked, it was either last week or the week before, about a sacrifice your mother made to get you all to the racetrack, but certainly it was your father's interest in racing that was the hub of the Elliott family dynasty there in the 80s, right? Yeah, I got to say that, you know, most times you look at a situation and the mom is the one that seems to support racing less than anyone, but it comes down at the end, she's really your biggest fan. And it comes down to without that support from both mom and dad, because mom could have cut it off at any time, because you and I both know that that your mom or your wife or, or whoever the influence is, is going to dictate a lot of what you do and, mom ain't and how passionate <laughs> you remain about it. And without that support, you, you wouldn't have done what you did. And I think of the thing, same things with, with Karen and Captain Herb. She she supported him through most everything that he did, but but together they they were such a wonderful pair. They complimented each other every time you came to the races and they broadcast from the track and and so forth. They just complimented each other, and and that's the way it should be. Did um and your dad? I guess said I I sometimes get mixed up on the history. He actually had a dealership, and then at what point was it? We're going big time racing. We're not just hitting Dixie Speedway. You know, he he did the big time deal about the same time in, in a way that, that he acquired a dealership. I, when he passed away, I kind of looked for when he incorporated the Dahlonega Ford sales, and, and that was the, the Ford dealership in the town close to us. And, and it wasn't until this past year that I found out he incorporated the Delonia Ford sales on my mom's birthday in 1969. So 
I found the paperwork on that, and and I was really glad to be able to do that because it 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 wow. kind of was history for me. And and uh, Daddy was always involved in racing. He always owned cars. He always had different people driving for him until the sons came along. And um, I don't think anybody was quite interested in in doing the whole thing in the scale that Bill was. And Bill came along and. And I think that everybody found their little niche in that Ernie with the motors. And I love the driveline stuff. So it all kind of fit in and, and worked well. So that, that part is um, your mom and dad influence a lot in what you do and, and very proud of where we're at. And, and, you know, I think about it, uh, Dan, I remember how much it meant to you at Gresham Motorsports Park. I think it was in the first year it was open in 2010 when one of the races was the George Elliott Memorial. I know how much first Captain Herb memorials have meant to me. There's a memorial ride every year, the Toys for Tots event, the Fred's Barbecue House. He, they throw both of these events every year, the Captain Herb Memorial Bridge, the plaques of the station. I can't get enough. I wanted to get it tattooed on me, and Sarah said no, and Herb hated that tattoo. So I know how much the memorials mean. What, what was it like to you to see people start remembering your father in that way? And, and I want to ask you too. See, Dad was involved in that racetrack back in the early '70s. Not many people know that, but oh. he was involved with that track in the early '70s. And to to bring that a full circle, I guess you would say, and come back and be able to honor him. And uh, I want to thank Jim Gresham for for letting me do that, and Russ Sutton. They were they were the biggest influences on getting that done. And uh, I really do appreciate the the help that they gave me in getting that done well my, both my parents are, are are gone now but uh to my mom again as as uh as she got older and 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 i got older and we lived in different places it was uh racing and talking about nascar and talking about who she was mad at and who she loved Love and it. and uh you know and and who was who was coming along and who were the young drivers who were the best drivers um that was a real connection for us it was a place for the, to start the conversation no matter how many miles apart we were or how long it had been since the last time we we saw each other and you know toward the it's i always it's interesting to me because uh like kyle larson is interesting to me because he's the last driver that i debated with my mother you know oh, as yeah. to whether how how good he was did he deserve the ride so quickly was he gonna pan out and um and you know she didn't uh, she died before his first win but that was like our last project how's this guy gonna do you <laughs> now, know, which so. I, was did gonna, you... I was gonna ask eric how the family feuds were whenever you were picking different drivers or, uh, or uh, something came up how the feuds came uh, about my i have a younger brother uh kurt and we always no matter where we were we picked different drivers that were our favorite drivers and uh yeah those those are the feuds those are the fights on the way home right oh, especially great. if your favorite driver knocked his favorite driver out of the race or something along those lines so yeah it was, it was a lot of fun and i always i'd always pick against my mom of course that was oh, yeah. made things interesting you know <laughs> that, that that's really funny so my dad um my dad is definitely the reason that i first started watching racing i didn't grow up as a little kid really he, he would have it on sometimes he was never a diehard fan but as you both know, uh, Dan Elliott and Eric Von Hessler, in 2001, that was the year that I feel like racing really changed. And it, and, and it changed for me before the death of Dale Earnhardt. It was that very day. Ra suddenly, I don't know what the reason was that I decided to watch the whole race, but it may have been because they had that great a telecast. But that was the first year of the new TV deal that really put NASCAR 
it just seemed like it, it added to the ascension that was coming out of the 90s. And we watched that Daytona 500 together. My dad was rooting for Dale Earnhardt the entire time and talking about what iron oh ironhead ironhead the intimidator all that stuff and it was kind of the romanticized view of it that he was always trying to wreck somebody and and was the fan favorite Mm -hmm. even though that's very conflicted and all that and when he wrecked on the last lap i remember both of us laughing to joe oh and did i know anything about race earnhardt got him another one he got him another one. He took him out we didn't we weren't attuned to the storyline now we were we thought it was huge that michael waltrip and dale jr were first and second in the 2001 daytona 500 but we thought, you know, I knew nothing about racing. This was this was level, this was kindergarten for me. In a way, I was a freshman in high school, but it was kindergarten for racing. And we thought Earnhardt had taken somebody out. And then the plot thickens when I'm at church that night and I find out that Dale Earnhardt dies. Yeah. And, that, and that just kept it for me. So Dad got that race on the TV for me. And let me watch it every Sunday till I moved out, pretty much. And so, and he came up to Gresham Motorsports Park. Dan was nice enough to have my parents and my father-in-law there a few, several times. And it's it's just tough to know that that mm-hmm. little that little story that I share with him is not one we'll get to share in person anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, it's interesting. That race was a bonding race for my mother and myself as well. Yeah. Now she couldn't stand Dale Earnhardt. She was a <laughs> Jeff Gordon. She was a Jeff Gordon person. But when he got first, we knew he was hurt, and then it was a few hours before you found out. You know, then you're just a racing fan. You know, yes. as soon as somebody gets hurt, then you drop all of that oh, stuff. Oh yes. Oh yes. And and she did immediately, and so. Uh, later that night, I found out, and I I told her, and uh, we both kind of uh, sort of teared up together. That was a that was a an imp- and if you remember that race, uh, they talk about the interesting thing about racing is Tony Stewart was in a wreck in that same race. And if you would have asked somebody which wreck somebody would have lost sure. their life in, they would have pointed to the the Tony Stewart. I think he he, he flipped, flipped over, over sixteen cars yeah, and landed something. on his teammate Bobby Labonte. Yeah, none, and, nonetheless, yeah, and, and and so that's that's the that's how. It, I find racing, because of that element, is such a bonding thing with with the crowd because we all know that people can get hurt and can lose their lives really in any sport. But no sport, this is a sport that we as fans, we have to deal with that from time to time, much more so than other fans of other sports. And it's something that we all, those are the days that we just... We we sometimes ask ourselves why why do we love this so much when it takes so many people away and then there we are the next week and I don't even know that we can put it into words and and you know Formula One sprint cars IndyCar mm-hmm. it happens way more often drag racing yeah. a little bit more fortunately in NASCAR we haven't had an injury of that or a death since yeah. Dale Earnhardt's his really catapulted a lot of safety and boy it'd be nice to drag Jail, Dale Jr. into this room and talk about the importance importance of fathers and racing yeah. and conflicted and complicated relationships Absolutely. but but che- cheers to all three of our dads uh, Eric you're, you're, I know your mom's gone too and I, mm-hmm. I, I, I believe Dan your mom has passed as well and so we just yeah. um, we, we just lift all that up and, and just that thankful for God's healing at a time like this and I want to talk about as our uh, second subject today is is another death in NASCAR, and I think one that probably hits closest to home for Dan Elliott because he was in the garage right during Robert Yates's rise to prominence. And Robert Yates, as we said at the beginning of the show, passed away. Legendary engine builder. His that legacy obviously passed on to Doug Yates, who is just a stud and and is a great dude. By the way, I didn't get to talk to Robert very much, but I've talked to Doug Yates a little bit. 
and just an outstanding uh, guy. Any Ford that you see on the track in NASCAR has a Roush Yates engine, and that's the partnership of Jack Roush and the Yates family. So, Dan, I want to go to you first. You were a big uh, blossoming Ford team right there in the 80s. Uh, at that time, I think Robert Yates was going from Die Guard Racing to Rainier Racing to then forming that and becoming Robert Yates Racing in about 88, 89 or so. What what was your memory of Robert Yates, and how did you two interact in your glory days? You know, Robert was very tough competitor, and he loved Fords probably as much as we did, and we were just as much competitors of him as we were any other brand that was competing or any other person that was competing because it it was Doug early in the you know early in all of that you you learned as in everything sort of kind of the politics of the game and Robert was was very close never knew how close Robert was or Jack Roush was to Ford and you were competing for those dollars because it was a manufacturer at that time that was putting in a lot of money and you, you didn't see that as readily as the sponsors but manufacturers were putting in a lot of money and everybody was competing for that money and obviously we were too and would have made a lot of difference to us if we could have gotten more of the manufacturers money because i believe we could have gone even further than we did faster than we did but you know ford wasn't going to sponsor us until we beat the ford teams at isn't that something you drive a ford and you're still you're, <laughs> you're still competing for, for Ford's money, and we ended up beating some of the best teams at Daytona in 82, 83, and they finally come to you and say, okay, we've got some money for you. And you think, okay, you got to prove yourself. You got to get on top, and then you get some money. It's You need the help along, and you can't get it, but you come in, prove yourself, and then you can get some, some money. But he was a fierce competitor, obviously, and um, their program was an extremely well-structured program, and they were tough on and off the racetrack, and it, it got them to the level they are today. And obviously, in the Ford world, they're, they're among the best because they've got uh, produced some of the best stuff that, that's out there today and, and been able to stand the test of time. The father-son motif prevalent here. Yeah. Robert Yates passing on his expertise to Doug Yates, and now Doug Yates letting that live on. They're not living on as a race team. Robert Yates Racing folded, I think it was after the 09 season when it all kind of merged with Richard Petty Motorsports. And then the one of the most iconic race uh, paint schemes of all time was that Haviland number 28 yeah. Thunderbird of Davey Allison. Yeah. Another father-son motif there is he finished second to Bobby Allison in the 1988 Daytona 500, and, of course, Allison just missed on the championship there, uh, just, just like Bill did back in 92, and uh, and then was was gone soon after that. There's so much uh, – and it doesn't have to be just father-son, but parent-child, family and racing. Well, um, Eric, who are the people you rooted for, and, and sort of where did Robert Yates fall into your fandom? Well, I mean, as a, as a fan, it's just uh, you know an icon of the sport, a gentleman. That's the way that I saw him. One of those I, I always liked about uh, the the competition in NASCAR and, and racing in general is how fierce these people would compete, and then. Uh, when it was time to be a gentleman, when it was the the helping of 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 other teams from time to time, he just seemed like a gentleman. I miss I miss Yates Racing. 
I, I liked it from the beginning, uh, the da- Davy Allison years. I like that, uh, you know, to me, the last, I'm sure it went on, obviously it went on after this, but when the last time I remember Robert Yates racing being really, really significant to me was when uh, Ricky Rudd and Dale Jarrett were were uh, yeah. were, were, were teammates. 01, 02, and, and, yeah, and 2000. Those, yeah. those, the, those teams. And, uh, and, yeah, I just missed it. I was sad when Robert Yates racing went away. I know we all know that the those Ford engines are coming out of Roush Yates and the Doug Yates is considered a, a bit of a genius when it comes to these engines as well. But it's not the same as uh, seeing them as a team out there. But those are the old days where you had a lot of two-car teams. Yeah, right? Certainly, yeah. Dan and I were talking before we got cranky with the show today about how it's, you know, Dan, maybe you want to comment on this here uh and uh, how it's just not, and I, I, we all know we're gonna. We don't want to sound like get off my lawn, yeah. as you would say. Yes, you know, it's not like the old days, but certainly there were a lot of one and two car teams, Dan. And Robert Yates was the perfect state. He wasn't an independent because he had the factory money and he had sponsorship, but he made it seem attainable to get NASCAR glory. Yeah, he did to some degree, that's for sure. But as we talked earlier, when it comes down to You've got relatively, you can probably almost count all the team owners on one hand. Mm -hmm. And obviously, one hand of owners controls most of it anyway. And as I told you, it really caps my ass to think about these people, how they control the sport. And you you can't come in loving their money in the franchises. It's just hard to do. And nothing against the owners that own teams today. It's, It's just the system as we find in life, as we deal with a lot of other things, it's not the people, it's the system that's broken. So now you're in a situation to where that if you want to come into NASCAR, you have to come in through the teams that are there. And obviously, if you don't have a lot of money, you don't come in. You, you surely can't come in like we came in in the 70s and the 80s and, and do anything like that today. And, and it's just sad because... You know, it comes back to what I told you about the Tom Petty song. You're battling all of this, whether it be at that time, you're always battling the sanctioned body, and and you can't take it personal. You're always battling the sanctioned body. You're always battling something. But as I told you, the Tom Petty deal, that was one of the songs that got me through a lot of the stuff because you can stand me up the gates of hell and I won't back down. And you'll find that in a lot of the teams – that competed because otherwise you are quickly run over and you're out of the sport. Yeah, I was uh, I, I was thinking about – you brought something up, uh, I don't know if it was in the last podcast. Oh, yeah, you can stand me up at the gates Still of hell. It makes you sound better. But it won't <laughs> back down. This is Dan Elliott. Yeah. <laughs> I, like how the about sound, the I like how the sound waves like ripple up when you yeah. put some music on. It's nice. <laughs> um, uh, you had brought up uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, the multiple sponsors on cars now, as opposed to in, in the old days that you used to, one car was one paint scheme for the most part, every race, and, and one sponsor. And it made me think that uh, NASCAR may be in a situation right now where it just costs too much money to have one of the top teams. That's why you're gathering well, sure. so many different and I, I and going to what 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 Dan just said, um, I really think that NASCAR needs to think about how to make this 
cheaper how to sure. how to make an, an entry and i don't know we've talked about cutting races i don't i can't do they still have a moratorium on testing like they did yeah for a few there's years? there is no testing unless it's completely right. sanctioned by nascar a good year and they usually just have a certain selection of drivers from each manufacturer so let's take what we're saying now make make this our third subject and i want to bring it in to uh, some news that came out uh, during just in the lead up to this show here, right as we clicked. And by the way, if you're just tuning in midstream, wondering who all the voices are, you've got Eric Von Hessler, talk host of WSB. His brand new schedule, by the way, is now 9 to 11 on 95.5 FM and the WSB radio app here in Atlanta. And your podcast hour is still on, right, 11 to 12? That is correct. On the Von Hessler Doctrine Facebook page. That's the name of his show. You're joined by former Gresham Motorsports Park GM, champion mechanic, uh, part of the Elliott clan out of Dawsonville, Dan Elliott. And I want to talk about this third subject here, is NASCAR is tweaking not the competition rules as far as the administration of the races, but some stuff on the race cars for next year. A, a lot of the aerodynamics that you see with spoiler and, and ride height and like that are similar. Uh, one thing that they're talking about, though, is, and I, I don't know how much you guys listen to scanner traffic, but you hear all the time, hey, uh, flip the green button there. That's your right front fan, da 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 da. Mm-hmm. Be sure to do that on lap six. Be sure to do I mean, they've got this figured out way more engineered than we even know. So NASCAR is reducing the number of aerodynamic fans located in the wheel corners. They get one race gear at all racetracks unless they have repaves or reconfigurations. That's, that's interesting. I don't yeah. even know. Or one, I'm sorry, one rear gear at all tracks. So they're they're not bringing six of them in the truck or however many. The some some rules with the front frame are modified to reduce how much they can tweak it aer- aerodynamically. Some of the speedway rules as far as the plate tracks are the same. But here's what I want to get to that I think I think may have to do with engine costs, Dan Elliott, and this is right up your alley. T and listen to this area. This is I think this is outside the box. Teams must compete in a minimum of 13 races with a short block sealed engine. And that, that involves the several big parts of the engine. They must compete with a long block sealed engine at the Clash at Daytona and the All-Star Race. And the single engine rule, which they've already announced this, will be enforced at all events, including the Daytona 500. It means if you change a motor, you go to the back. And finally, all backup cars will be unloaded without an engine already installed. So it keeps teams from taking so many engines to the racetrack. Mm-hmm. Dan, when you hear, I'll just reduce this, less aerodynamic tools in the car that teams could build in, plus these sealed engines. What does that spell to you as a former team co-owner? Well, it spells to me more rules, more regulations, more crap. And, <laughs> and Wait, is and this the Herman Cain show? Is this really a- <laughs> care because they, they want to see a good race. And just like I always told them at Gresham, you know, the more rules and regulations you have to abide by, the more time-consuming it is for somebody to try to keep everything legal Mm -hmm. and the time it takes to do this whether it be before you get to the racetrack or after you get to the racetrack doesn't really matter to me it's just more ways of control and and i don't like that in the least uh now i'm gonna get this because i'm just hearing this for the first time is this an attempt to bring down cost or is it an attempt to make the race itself more Eric, I don't see how on God's green earth that you can bring down the cost because if you bring down the cost of, okay, so it might be fewer motors. doesn't mean that you can't have a stockpile of them back at the shop. Mm. And even if you don't have the motors, well, then let's go buy a new airplane. Yeah. 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 And, and then that's generally when they did a moratorium and testing, as you mentioned earlier, Eric, that money then, I never heard the word simulation 
or oh. seven post rig until about 10 years mm-hmm. ago when they started really clamping down on testing. And then there was zero testing, which is what we have now. And frankly, mm-hmm. Dan, that's probably what helped keep Gresham closed right now is because that income's not coming in. So, but uh, so one thing that Dan, you and I were talking about as we r- heard these rules for the first time is that NASCAR. It may take some of the inspection process away for the racetrack. Then when they do the full teardown of the car after a race, they will have already inspected the engine. Everybody will have a sealed motor, so they couldn't have done much to it at the racetrack. Do you think that does anything good or bad? Well, Doug, I don't know how God's green earth they're going to seal a short block assembly. And you still would have to look at the short block heads would or a short block assembly would primarily be the block crank rods and pistons camshaft and Nailed long it. block. That's the list right in front of me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> is uh, is you add the cylinder heads and on the long block are they also adding an intake manifold and oil pan? It says all elements included in the short block seal or what's on the long block plus the cylinder heads and valves. Okay. All right. So long blocks, just cylinder head and valves. Okay. So they still got inspection of the other components that'll have to be done also. I don't know what they're trying to do, but I, I, it doesn't mean a lot to me. And as a, as a fan now, instead of being deeply rooted in the sport, I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. And Eric, as long as what it's you- legal and everybody else is legal. I, and I don't know how it's going to save any money. I really mm-hmm. don't. It may not. Eric, what do you think about just having less things to tune on aer- aerodynamically? So there's two conflicting wars of thought that if I, you know, I was on debate team in high school, my dad drove me to a lot yeah. of the matches in middle of high school. Okay. You know, there's two conflicting schools of thought. More rules means you can have more parity, better racing, or more, more rules means that all the cars are the same and nobody can pass. Yeah. When you t- when you hear things like you can't really tune on this or that as part of the front frame or the fans aerodynamically, what what do you I, think? I, I think uh, it might be time to get just get a little simpler. Uh, yeah. it, it depends. Well, simpler. Less fans <laughs> yeah. will do that for sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, if uh, it, it, in anything you need a certain amount of rules, and then what happens is there's a rule to adjust that rule, and then now that rule has to be adjusted for another rule, and at a certain point it doesn't even matter anymore. You have so many rules that everybody's illegal. It's just a matter of whether or not they get caught. And I think that they might be in that sort of situation now. My what I want to see is I want to see more. I want to see more teams. I want to see more entrepreneurs. I want to see young people coming up that are more innovation. More, more innovation. Yes, more yeah. innovation. I want to. I want to. So you They're know, innovating things we don't know about. Yeah. They're innovating wheel fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about just yeah. horsepower? Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. Like, but yeah, that, but that costs millions too to innovate the yeah. big stuff that's that we like, like yeah. the body. Oh, the the body on the yeah. on the uh, let's say the body on the Joe Gibbs cars looks really good. No, it's all right. kind of pre done. So, so it, I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm not uh, in, enough in the sport to know what the answers are. I just know as a fan, I want to see more variety. I want to see more types of owners, more types of drivers, and I want to see, uh, I want to see the brain trust of one one team go up against the different thinking and the different brain trust of another team get them out there on the track sure we want them to be close i don't want to be like formula one or something like that i want it to be close formula one formula one i want i want uh, rubbing is racing i I want i want some level of i want a race car to look like a race car again thank you make race cars race cars again instead of of something that's remade just just to compete in a series 
And so, and you know, I think about Formula One, and I think this is what we're getting to with new race fans. Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm just weird. When I tune in on a Sunday morning, I wake up, you know, before I'm doing church or family stuff. I look at my phone. Oh, the F1 race is on at 7:30 in the morning. I go run downstairs. <laughs> better you know, see the better see better see the first lap because that's <laughs> about where everything happens. <laughs> and I always miss the first lap. That's what stinks. Okay, and so the F1 race is on. And I feel like I'm looking at it, and I already don't know as near as much as I know about NASCAR and F1. And I'm go, and I'm going, this looks completely unattainable. The, I oh, look at yeah. this as yeah. just a fan. I'll go, there are 60 guys sitting in this pit box with three second pit stops, and I, mm-hmm. and and racing because I've been so close to it. It's like a frog of boiling water. I don't even realize myself how far things have come since 2001 when I first started watching. Certainly, Eric from the 70s or 70s, 80s for you, and yeah. Dan, same for you. Do, what do does a sponsorship cost you in AF1? No Ooh, idea. I don't I, know. You have 50, to do 50, 60 million. Yeah, I think oh it, you gosh. have to sponsor both cars. Have to uh, a sponsor has to sponsor both cars. So oh, yeah. you're in for two. You can't so have one car. So back to your uh, yeah. Is that attainable? Heaven's no, no. Yeah. I mean, what companies and are going like to want to throw down one? Just like the sponsors for the cars yeah. that you see in NASCAR today, when you've got multiple sponsors during the given year well you know nascar may find themselves in that same situation for for a series sponsor and so and i think about it too how much do either of you ever think about bush beer outside of kevin harvick having a bush car <laughs> right yeah i mean ever yeah. it used to be yeah. that was budweiser right yeah and budweiser used to be the entire schedule mm-hmm. and then they, they paired back i loved when they went to harvick and they had the black bud car richard i thought that was cool sure and then they they paired it down paired it down to the point where they're like you know, well, let's promote one of our niche brands, Bush. Because yeah. they make and a decision that that yeah. demo how, is a NASCAR demo. So, yeah. How right. in the heck is there not a Budweiser car? Yeah. How in the heck is there not a KFC car? Those used to be on the same car, mm-hmm. Junior Johnson's team, right? How, I, I just don't understand how that how there's not how, how and it's been it's because of all the reasons we've said but part the part of me inside just hurt I'm like what what I'm wondering is and you guys probably know this better than my and and Dan you'll know do they th- what are they if they're getting together this year and they, okay new rules what is their emphasis I think their emphasis should be on you know entry that more entrepreneurs, more people can get involved in racing. And it seems like every year it's about aero and this and that. And, and they come up with this whole package that's supposed to make the racing better, and nobody knows what the damn thing's going to look like till they get on the track, no. and half the time they get and, it wrong. And the media blows it out, and I didn't mean to step in front of you, Dan. The media blow. you know, this could be the ticket. Mm-hmm. This could be the ticket. We're finally going to see a green flag pass for the lead that's not in a pit sequence or a restart. All right. This is going to be the ticket right here. And then you go to the drivers of the media tour and they try to be optimistic, you know, and say words like excited. And they're like, then they're, they're kind of tired of it now because every year is the new savior, the new messianic rule change. And they go, yeah, I mean, I kind of expect it to be the same. And they're, almost always right and if there if it is better usually by the midpoint of the season the engineers have done figured it out i've asked countless drivers this they uh they kind of say yeah it's uh mm-hmm. yeah. you know they our guys are going to figure it out we pay them way too much i don't know dan <laughs> sometimes it's just a deal where i think it's like the movie now you see me is one of those things where nascar keeps you working on things that keep you so busy and so distracted, you don't have time to work on anything else that could give you an edge. Uh, and, and You're so I'll, busy doing other things that you do not have time to do all the things that, that it takes to get an advantage. 
And all the time, uh, oh, go ahead, Eric. First. I was just going to ask the, both of you if you uh, do you think the franchising thing has been good or bad for the sport? It's, it seems to me that that, that it's not helping. I, but uh, I don't think it's made Eric. I don't think it's made any difference whatsoever. Right. And and do the fans even know no. what's yeah. going on no. as far as the franchises and how hard it is to get into a ride, even if you want to get into a ride, or even to get into the series? And, you know, Doug was talking about the gear change. You know, I know a little bit about trans and gears. Yes, you and do. Transmissions. You do not oh, even realize what it means to have one gear. Used to be you could have manufacturers that, that manufactured rear-end gears. They manufactured up to, I know of 50 different ratios for a nine-inch gear that you could use at any racetrack you wanted to use. Talk so about innovation. You go to Charlotte this weekend, and you had the range of running anywhere from a 350. They made a 350, a 356, a 60, a 64, a 70, a 75, a 80, a 82, and a an 89, and that's what you'd take to Charlotte. Right. So now you're backing down to where you're using one ratio at every racetrack. Okay, that's all well and good. But now the manufacturers that manufacture these gears for road cars at the time, they had a shelf full of this stuff, and they made it primarily for racing because there wasn't an avenue on the street that anybody needed this ratio. So you end up with a stockpile of stuff on the shelf that NASCAR has just reduced to zero because – now mm-hmm. you've got to dump it all. Yeah. Well, maybe they could just put it in a big vat and melt it down and make another airplane. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, look, so, and so, so when you take so away that you variance, have all this inventory, yeah. Just like when you find something with the engine, let's say that you've been machining cylinder heads and and you've been porting cylinder heads and you've come up with a something that you found and now you change the program in the CNC or you've just obsoleted every cylinder head that you've got in inventory. And it's okay. So that doesn't reduce cost. Certainly, and then, no, you, and then you take away variance. So you take away variance with okay, this this mechanic or this team of engineers or now it's engineers. You know, right? They mm-hmm. they they have they could say you know what it does is it prevents uh, say. Eric Almarola in the 43, Richard Petty Motorsports are not a powerhouse now from catching lightning one weekend because either they made a lucky guess or figured something out in their playbook right. and actually running fifth or even first at Charlotte. Now the only way to catch lightning is when we're at Talladega or Daytona. Yeah. The only way to get into the sport right now, if you look at the premium motorsports teams in the back of the pack, the uh, the um, TMG Motorsports team, uh, the Circle Sport with TMG team, and who am I forgetting? The um, the fifty one Rick Ware racing. I mean, these cars are buckets of bolts in the back. They're buying the the second or third before generation cars from the big race teams, and then just running the same ones out to the track each week. That's not entry to the yeah. sport. That's just in the field. That's being in the field. There's yeah. no chance. So even one of those cars, if they picked up a good gear ratio, let's just say, because we're talking specifically about that. Maybe they could go run a 25th or 20th at Charlotte because, you know, one of the old washed-up crew chiefs that knew the rule book back 10 years ago knows something, and it's just so hard now. Most of the ways that drivers are getting into the sport is by simply bringing the money, plopping it on a third-tier car, and going out and hoping that somebody will notice them or they'll get more money, and, and it just doesn't. Most people pan or don't pan out. Yeah. That's Eric, simple. Doug, That's not you want to get a little more technical? Let's, let's yes. look at this. Okay, so <laughs> – now they dictate one gear ratio and who decides the ratio because in the scheme of things, every engine manufacturer is trying to figure out 
what ratios NASCAR is making you run and trying to develop their engines to run at optimum horsepower with one of those ratios. Now you're down to one. You, you had three before. Now you're down to one. Okay, so let's say the Toyotas ran really well with that one gear ratio now that they're dictating. And let's say that Ford and Chevrolet was a little bit more off at that RPM because you're you're making different levels at different RPMs. Oh, so yeah. who did we help and who did we hurt? Yeah, you wonder all that talk about Toyota being ahead if somehow this is behind the scenes, this is the Frank yep. Underwood smoke yep. room deals deal. If that's you know, if that's if that's something to that. I usually, I you know, it's I'm not much of a conspiracy theory guy, and so I usually Alex am, Jones. Yes, I'm very, I'm I'm hesitant to think that uh, there are backroom deals too much. I could be wrong, and I could be, oh, I, could, Eric, I could be naive. Go in the real world. Okay, okay. all Here right. Well, you know, you were Here there. Here comes Dan Elliott. <laughs> yeah, you were there. I'm just up in the stands, so I can't see it. You you've been there and you've seen it. You join the real world because <laughs> it's like any other business. You do what you can to gain an advantage, and you, you do what you can. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, well, look. But well, for the governing body's point of view, the best thing for them is good races, right? And the best races you're going to have is when you have different minds who are approaching the same track with uh, slightly different angles, and then they get out there, and they put the you know the rubber meets the road, and you find out, and then you add the element of the of the driver and how good the driver is. And it seems to me that the, the governing body would want uh, the, uh, the, the ability to have exciting races. Exciting races aren't won by the same people all the time. You know, you want somebody to jump up and, and, and surprise you or a team to surprise you. And like right. you said, that only happens now at the uh, maybe – not even the road courses so much anymore because everybody's an ace at those now. Uh, but the, the, uh, the, the plate the, races. The plate races. Hey, oh, or look, I remember this guy, and, and, and I want to use this to seek into our next subject here. At Atlanta Motor Speedway in 2001, this is right before I really started going to, Atlanta, you know, mm-hmm. to races often, Dave Blaney, Bill yes. Davis Racing's second car, yes. Amoco number 93 Dodge, it almost wins the damn thing. He almost mm-hmm. wins the race, and, and and it wasn't from some fluke. It was he didn't. It wasn't pit strategy. In fact, it was a fluke that took him out. He, I think he had a wheel come loose, or he, you know he had something mechanically fail on the car. Dave Blaney would have won at Atlanta Motor Speedway, outrunning all the big teams. And Bill Davis was not the big one. It was a middle class team, and how that about, just doesn't happen. How about happen. Derek Cope? Sure. Yeah. It, twice in, in 1990. Mm-hmm. Twice because yep. he won Dover as well. I think he was a 91 Dover. But yeah, Derek exactly. And well, how much uh, another element? I know you wanted to go to something else, but just just thinking about this, these big teams, I would imagine, also suck up all the big talent behind the scenes, sure. right? So if I'm trying to come into the sport, uh, a lot of the people that are deemed the best are with the big teams making the most money, right? I mean, I would imagine it's yeah, very difficult exactly. to get good engineers. They're at Hendrick and they're at uh, they're at Gibbs. They're they're at the Ganassi. And if somebody stands out at say Ganassi. Gibbs is ready to write him a check. Right. That's. I mean, that's the bottom line. I think mm-hmm. I, what I've heard from about crew members and engineers or uh, personnel is in the off season, Gibbs more than anybody else looks around the garage and says, "Let me write you a check." And I think that's part of the reason that people don't talk about why Roush Fenway Racing has been so behind. That I've heard is not always the greatest place to work. It's one person described it to me one time, and I'm not saying this myself. It's just what was said. This it is was a like, rumor. It's like a prison camp, is what they call it. <laughs> but it, but it is. They, right. You work long days at Roush, so you're working long days. You're running 21st with Trevor Bain, and then you get a big check from Gibbs. 
That's where yeah, you're gonna go. See you later. I mean, I would too. I'd go, I'd go to Huntersville. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I want to move to the next subject then, because I talked about Dave Blaney and heartbreak at Atlanta Motor Speedway back then, and he did win an Xfinity race, but was winless in his Cup career. We certainly don't expect the same fate for young Chase Elliott. Short of his 22nd birthday, I think he's had now his fifth runner-up finish, but this one hurt more than the others. He didn't surge up to second place. He fell back to it on the penultimate lap there to one of the sport's greatest, let's face it, Kyle Busch at Dover this past weekend. Chase, of course, and Kyle and, and the other 10, they they advanced to the round of 12. He made it safely, but he was racing for a win, and he kept himself on the bottom line there, got hung up a lap traffic, and Bush passed him on the outside and turned three with uh, two laps to go. So, uh, Dan, I, because I'm, I'm picking on your family here, Dan, um, I want to go to you first. Did you? Um, I assume that you at least saw the highlights or watched the race. What did you see there that maybe he could have done differently? What were your feelings <clears throat> as Chase saw another one slip away? I saw something with a chapped Captain Herb's eyes. Uh, correct. <laughs> oh, Kyle the Pyle, another Toyota. <laughs> you know, you know, Chase is going to be there, and and he's he's in a excellent car. All of these front runners and excellent cars. Nobody really drives junk. Um, everybody's in good stuff, and I remember how many times we ran second in the career and then i think about harry gant and other drivers that have Uh come through the sport kyle larson and and you know it's just pretty much an indoctrination process and and nobody's going to give you anything and i'm sure if anybody were asked whose ass you'd want to hand them on a silver platter i'm sure kyle bush is going to say rick henry because Hmm. you know he had the opportunity to drive on for rick and rick let him go yeah, and, and, and it was replaced by Dale Jr., has who has done nothing like he's done I don't know how since. Rick stands with Cal or Cal stands with Rick. We've never gotten into those conversations mm-hmm. before, but I'm sure that there's no love lost. Right. And, yeah. and and I remember Kyle Busch firing his agent after all that happened 10 years ago as well. So, Eric, you, I'm sure you saw yeah, the race yeah, Sunday. Yeah, your thoughts? A, uh, you know, I, it, it, getting that first win is – is so difficult. I, I think I have. Tell me if my memory's wrong here. But when Casey Kane was running for Evernham in the nine, didn't he knock on the door? Yes. And then I think oh, maybe, he didn't win until the it, next year. It was something like Michigan or somewhere. He was going for a win, and he had two laps to go and gotten somebody's oil. It was like he had like he had the he had everybody like ten yeah. seconds, and with two laps to go, somebody dropped oil, and he ended up in the. So I don't. I'm a fan. Yeah, I'm, but Doug and Eric, is is it not? I remember one of these times that I don't remember if it was us or Harry Gant, but they were talking about, and the media was talking about this, the sophomore curse. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I don't know if Doug remembers much about it or not, but usually it's not in the second year that drivers are as, I guess they have to get through the freshman year and through the sophomore year. But once you get your first win, Eric, once you do, and it's coming, then they just kind of just line up like ducks in a yeah, row. Well, yeah, look at Kyle Larson. Kyle Larson didn't win. Yeah. This is his uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, his fourth season, yeah. uh, his fourth full-time season. He didn't get his first win until his third season, and then this year he's gotten yeah. four of them. So, I was going to yeah. say, I was <laughs> say I'm, I'm not a driver, so I don't know the particulars, but I've been watching the sport long enough to know, first of all, that Chase is going to win many races yeah, in his career. Yeah, he's going to win, win many and, races. And, and, sure. and I don't know the particulars of it, but the, this – loss in the way that this happened he's going to learn something from that like I say I'm not a driver I don't know the particulars but he is going to learn from that and when he's put into that
that position in the future, he will he will have learned from from what happened there. Um, I don't know that uh, I don't know if he should have gone up and and maybe tried to take that line away. Uh, and from that was Kyle, Kyle Bush's Bush, opinion you know. when someone asked him, "Hey, you've won a lot of these things. Yeah. What could he have done differently?" And he was surprised Kyle Bush, the race winner, was because he didn't see Elliott changing lanes, trying to find grip or get out of the wake of the lap cars. One of those lap cars, by the way, right. and, and I, w- I want to get to that because that that's going to be our last subject. This is number four. Number five is next, um, and that that'll be our final one. Uh, but Chase Chase also is famously hard on himself, and some people really don't like it, and I used to really not like it. He used to be hard on himself as a 13-year-old before he get his first late model win, and he was despondent on Sunday. I mean, had his hands over his eyes in the car. Jimmy Johnson was talking to him, and then and he was very mum, and I, mean, and I expect that. Hey, Doug. So, yeah. Did you, did you watch Tanner Gray red light uh, on Sunday at uh, Gateway? No, no. The, tell me about in it. In the first round. Now, talk about somebody tough on themselves, and I've seen this happen before in NASCAR, but um, he, um, the typical door slam, throw your safety device on the ground, and all the things that we all relate to as far as not being happy with yourself in, in whatever decision or choice you made, and we've all been there. Yeah, Kimi Raikkonen we, we, didn't even start learned, the F1 race, too. We learned over time how team. better to show it or keep it in or control it but you and i both know that regardless i I like to see the show of emotion because these people are passionate about what they're doing and 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 i want to see that passion it was just like what i loved about tony stewart i love to see the passion yeah, and, and by, I just want to say about Chase, I've heard it, people say, oh, well, I don't like that he's so hard on himself, and I'm thinking, but you also want to see emotion. Yeah, exactly, so, but, and also the other side of that is, um, you know, uh, that was a very exciting finish, and, uh, the, and what, that you race know, needed Kyle, it. Kyle Busch uh, really put the hammer down. We don't see that very often in the last few late, you know, last 10 laps of a race anymore. And we don't where, usually see a Toyota of Kyle Busch or Martin Truex Jr. chasing anybody either. Okay? <laughs> right, exactly. And I, and, and, and I have to say, the other side of it being Kyle, and then before we get to Ryan Newman, is there's no, there's only one Earnhardt. I'm not even going to come close to that. But um, he does race with that kind of feel. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was, if you were there, if you were a fan, that was a hell of an ending to that race. That's a, mm-hmm. and and that's that's racing. And I understand Chase's point of view. You're three laps away from your first Cup win. Uh, there's yeah, there's no way to digest that without disappointment. But yeah. uh, like I say, I'm just I'm sure that that is going to be there are going to be lessons that he learned in that race and at the end of that race that will be applied in the future to victories. Yeah, and another stuff has taken him out of victories as well that hasn't been his own doing. So I think he really beat himself up because that that was his and they and he mm-hmm. and his spotter uh, his spotter Eddie DeHaunt. And yes. his and his crew chief Alan Gustafson have to work together to get through that. Okay, so the last subject I want to talk about here: five to go. We go deep on five subjects each week in the racing world and in NASCAR, in particular. Ryan Newman was the lap car that Chase Elliott was stuck behind. And interestingly enough, when Kyle Busch got by Chase, he dusted Newman right there at the finish line. He, he Newman ended up finishing a lap down. Newman was two points from making the cutoff to get to the round of twelve, so he was racing hard. And I'm not going to talk about I – mean, we can talk about whether Newman should have moved over and given Chase room or not. I want to talk about after the race where Jeff Gordon, who is normally a Fox broadcaster, now he's not in the broadcast booth because it's on NBC, so he was sitting on the 24 pit box, and he walked by Ryan Newman and said something along the lines of, thanks for the help, and Newman said, hey, what's that, some kind of smart-ass answer? you know?" And, and 
And so I want to um, pivot to you first, Eric. What do you feel? So what is Jeff Gordon's place in the sport? He's a former driver. He's still involved with Hendrick Motorsports, and he's a broadcaster. Does he have any business going down on pit road? And I know he wasn't trying to make a scene. He was just saying something. And Newman really escalated it. Did, yeah, they ended it, up there. So yeah. he he and was made up. He yes. was truthfully he was being sarcastic. I don't think he really believed Ryan Newman had any obligation to do anything but race. Yeah. Um, but as a broadcaster, uh, I, it's supposed I, I, to be objective. Like yeah. you know, I mean, and we and we I know we are opinionated on the show, but we look at the, these subjects from a macro yeah. view. How do you feel about it? he as a broadcaster or his role in the sport? I think after Daryl Waltrip, um, I think that Jeff Gordon is on that. I mean, if you can't, I mean, there was a time when Daryl Waltrip was ascending, and when he was in the when he was in the just starting in the booth. I mean, he owned a couple of truck teams, sure. didn't he? He sure and, did. Uh, and of course, Michael Waltrip. We yeah. had Phil Parsons owning teams. Yeah. Uh, Brad Doherty. Yeah, it costs. Ray it costs so much money uh, to run in in NASCAR. I don't really have a problem with it. It, it comes down to is he objective in the booth. I feel like Jeff Gordon is objective in the booth. I don't feel like inside he has to be rooting. But we have this in all sports, right? And you can't tell me that Troy Aikman doesn't want the Cowboys to win. He's a good broadcaster because you don't pick it up as you're as you're listening to him. But you come on. If yeah. the Cowboys are playing, he wants the it, Cowboys it, you, to there's win. There's no doubt. So that's it's a conflict that's in a lot of sports. Does he still own half of or whatever of the forty eight? So. Is he part of the forty eight yeah, ownership no, as so, well? Yes. It might be something that maybe they should mention. You know, because yeah. Troy Aikman doesn't own part of the Cowboys, so uh, maybe it's something that maybe the fans should know a little more about. But yeah, you know. well, I mean, people know even if he didn't own it, he drove the twenty-four. Yeah, he's sitting on the twenty-four's pit box, yeah. and then the other half of the season he's up in the booth. But doesn't Troy Aikman go to mini camp for the Cowboys? I, I, I think, I, and you know, That's the question point. is, how good are they when they're in? The booth. Yeah. Are they homers or are they actually being objective? It, and I've got one more thought on that, Dan. What are yours? You know, it's racing. Get over it. And um, <laughs> might be yeah. like the movie, uh, was it um, uh, Waterboy, where he says, hey, uh, Ryan Newman might do a jackhammer on him. I don't know. <laughs> hey, so, <laughs> might, be, might be some interesting TV after the race is over, some post-race interviews and uh, post-race wrestling. What, what about the line between drivers, crewmen, and personnel on the team? Remember the time that Richard uh, Childers went after Kyle Busch? And there was a lot of talk when that happened. He goes, "Hold my watch," because Bush had just wrecked one of the uh, mm-hmm. one of the Xfinity or truck teams or whatever. It was one of the truck teams, and okay, there's something about drivers handling it themselves. And I and I well, know the let's chase. Go back it- to, let's go back to the races whenever we were running short track in the seventies, and somebody didn't like something after the race was over. Usually, the crew and the driver were all coming toward you with tire tools and <laughs> wrenches and, and everything else. It's a whole lot better than it was. Yeah. And, and But they've tried to make an effort to keep it separate. And Jeff Gordon's obviously a former driver who carries a, d- a different load of water, but let's say it was Alan Gustafson, or let's say it was Rick Hendrick. Does Do they, I mean, at, at some point, you know, when they when they start confronting each other, what? how far is too far? We've seen wives and girlfriends do that too. Uh, Eric, I don't know your thoughts it's on that. A, uh, it's, such a, it's a uniquely emotional sport uh, you're going 200 miles an hour you're uh, getting crashed out by somebody you're hitting the wall you're banging around so i understand i especially understand it from drivers when they 
get out of the car hot-headed. You maybe expect a little more as you go up the management scale, right? You expect a little more from the crew chief. You expect even more from from the, the car owner. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's an emotional sport. It's a passionate sport. Uh, the important thing, what I don't like to see is when the feuds go on over seasons, I think I think feuds should kind of be in a season. Interesting. I, th- and, I think you're and, an outlier as far as really? that goes. Yeah, because yeah, people mean, are saying we need a good feud in NASCAR no, right now. I like Where's the it feuds. at? Yeah. It's everybody versus Kyle Busch. Everybody hates Kyle Busch, right? <laughs> it's, He's a, yeah. it's a feud with the world. Chris right? Rock needs to make a show. Everybody hates <laughs> Kyle. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I, I just I don't I I like my image of the old days is. You know, they fought it out on the track, and sometimes that turned into a fist fight in the infield. And then, if you caught them at midnight at the local bar, they're all drinking together. Well, that's what I like would Dale Earnhardt and Rusty Wallace. They threw the water bottle. They they wrecked at Bristol together, yeah. and then you know they were there. Nobody knew it, but they were on the back deck having beers at Earnhardt's house. If that you're week. part of this industry at that level, you are part of a fraternity that is only. There's only a handful of human beings that are in it, and you can only really talk to those people about what you're doing. Hey, Dan, uh, when I think of Bill and your team, I think about the rivalry with Earnhardt. Is there a rivalry that people don't remember that the Elliott family or or Bill himself had with another driver? Well, I think that one was the one that was probably the most promoted out of the the rivalries. Notice he said promoted. uh, (laughs) There there were other rivalries, obviously, but but it's like Eric said – you've got a lot at stake and it comes down to race day. There, there is a lot of emotion on race day. And once you get through it and you kind of put yourself, you, you kind of put yourself in somebody else's shoes because like Ryan is saying here, he's trying to get himself. He's trying to keep himself in the chase. And I understand that he's got a, he's got a huge stake in this. Of course. And, and, and he's just trying to keep himself in the hunt. And we're talking about chase and, and, you know, all of this is not over. You, you still got the rest of the races left. And, and there's a lot of things that can happen between now and the last race. So, and, and Chase doesn't want to put himself in a bad position if he's in the round of eight or going and trying to get into Homestead. And he's, he's roughed it up with Ryan Newman because, let's face it, guys, Ryan Newman is routinely thought of as sure. the hardest driver to pass in NASCAR. And I think especially when you're talking about his playoff survival on the line, but there. again, I, I not being a driver, I would imagine, and uh, you know, and not not knowing Chase, uh, I, and as he dissects this whole thing, I don't think it's going to have a whole lot to do with Ryan Newman. I think he's going to think about no. other lanes he could have tried and other things he would have done. So yeah, it's passionate. You're right there. Hey, thanks for the help. But as you move on and learn your lessons, I think I think Chase is going to forget about Ryan Newman. I don't think it's really yep. made much of a difference. Yeah, for sure. Yep, okay, I agree with that. For sure. And so, uh, one thing I want to wish, uh, by the way, this weekend, uh, Ryan Blaney won the Xfinity Series race. The Dust of the Field Cup driver took it at Dover. But there was a first-time winner this weekend. And uh, to bring this back to Las Vegas, uh, the Truck Series was there. And on Saturday night, Ben Rhodes, talk about a guy that's had several heartbreak finishes and mm-hmm. second place and blowing an engine while he's leading. Ben Rhodes got got ahead on a restart there and kept the lead toward the end and with Christopher Bell the Titan in the Camping World Truck Series right now diving to the apron was able to block him off right at the checkered flag and win and get his first career win and so there there's sort of all this uh, angst and domination yeah. in the NASCAR world and finally a driver that that is a playoff driver in trucks by the way Ben Rhodes is able to get to the top there and so I, I said heartbreak there and we were talking about Tom I I know it's so cheesy but we're yes. talking about Tom Bra- uh, Tom Brady good lord no 
Tom He's Petty. never had a heartbreak. He is never. Uh, Tom <laughs> Petty, and, and uh, both of you were sharing memories of Tom Petty and, and the heartbreakers and everything like that. And, rock, and Eric, you've been a rock and roll uh, morning show host for many years well, in your career. Well, a fan more than that, even. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, so what, what, is some, what are some of your memories of that? And do, does any of that intersect with the racing world? Uh, well, I don't know if, uh, if he intersects with the, with the racing world, but I, just in terms of Tom Petty, uh, the longevity of the career, that's very difficult to do in rock and roll. It's very difficult to stay on top for some 40-odd years uh, like they did. And I don't mean number ones all the time, but just being present and selling out stadiums, selling out Phillips Arena-sized places for 40-some-odd years. And I can bookend that with I – I only saw Tom Petty once, and I saw him in 1982. My sons – who are 32 and 19 now, saw him about four months ago and oh, wow. told me how great he was. And he was great when I saw him in 1982. So that's what I'm left with is the the longevity of the career and uh, just, you know, some people are really good at what they do, and he was really good at what he did. I never had anything against Tom Petty. I think my biggest uh, memory – I was hoping the whole time it wouldn't make that email sound, eh, well, okay? It, it, did. it did it right then. Uh, my my uh, biggest memory of Tom Petty is actually being in youth group at church, and we used to play Won't Back Down as some of the secular songs we would sing with youth group that weren't right. too controversial. We never did Last Dance with Mary Jane. I, I don't, don't know, know why. why. <laughs> don't know why, but we, but, we used to, but we used to play Won't Back Down, and I think I knew that as a song we did at youth group and then learned it was a Tom Petty song. Uh, Dano, I know Tom Petty, uh, another bad pun, struck a chord with you, but what, what does his loss mean and what did his music mean to you through the years well you know it's got to be like eric says for these for these bands to stand the test of time is a testament to how 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 good they are and and how good their music was and and how well they're respected in, in the industry because otherwise you just go away and and that is when when you stand the test of time like that it, it is a testament to to what you the legacy that you leave behind you know what? Actually, very quickly, I did see him one other time. I saw Johnny Cash at the House of Blues Ooh, wow. in Los Angeles Ooh. on his 64th birthday. Carlene was there. Um, uh, June Carter was there. And uh-huh. Tom Petty was there as well as part of that whole thing. And that was one of the best shows I ever saw in my life. And he was part of that as well. So yep. That is very cool. It's, and um, I would... I don't know how to pin Tom Petty exactly because he's a rock star, but it seemed like when you talk about him in that setting, Eric, and and when I think about his music, his most recent kind of hit that had all this play was, you know, this is my country. You know, it sort of was a, that's not really what you think of as a rock song. So I guess, guys, would be transcendent be a good word? I mean, he sort of, he just, he was just sort of an iconic, uh, figure in you know, American music. There are only yeah. certain uh, people in music, modern music, pop music, whatever you want to call it, who you know their songs will be sung well into the future, and Tom Petty is mm-hmm. one of those people. 50 years from now, somebody's going to be learning how to play a guitar, and they're going to be playing Tom Petty songs, and they'll be played in bars, and again, like the longevity, it's uh, that's, that's rare. That's rare that songwriters... Uh, actually, there's Doug or Eric. Do either one of you know? I thought I'd heard one of the interviews that Tom did probably a decade or more ago, and one of his early idols in life was Elvis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and, and and it's just amazing to me the the type songs that they have and the idols that they had growing up, and and how their music developed into what it is, and and so forth. And and sometimes you just don't put the two together, but. Uh, no, it's, it's pretty neat when you've got that. I was reading a New Yorker profile uh, this morning on him where I started reading it. But hold on. This will answer your question. Loves your mama, loves Jesus.
Jesus in America too. Oh, I thought you were going to say Elvis there, is it? I think right here. It's crazy about Elvis. Uh, that New Yorker profile talked about his uh, background and liking Elvis, and they sort of thought that this was a sort of a reverse biographical reference here in this yeah. song, even though he's writing about a girl. So I think it's I think this well, is a good songwriters <laughs> often use other types of people to stand in for themselves in their songs. <laughs> I've got a friend who's really into it. <laughs> so, you know, they say, hey, my friend is into this. What do you think? It's really you. Okay, well, folks, let's leave on that good note there. Remembering Tom Petty, Robert Yates. Of course, my, my father and, and hey, the, the parents of everybody else, uh, with uh, Dan Elliott here and Eric Von Hess on the podcast. And most importantly, of course, let's remember the 59 people that lost their lives and almost the 530 hurt in that Las Vegas massacre. We thank you all for listening to the 5 to Go podcast. And we'll be back with you what we hope will be on lighter terms next week. Now the vampires Walking through the valley Move west down Ventura Boulevard And all the bad boys Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.